So today's chapter for us is Matthew 27, the darkest and hardest chapter in Matthew where we see everything that happened to bring Jesus toward his death. Even when we know the end of the story and he gets to preach the end of the story, we can hardly bear to see the way Jesus is treated by his own people, his own disciple, Judas, the conniving Pharisees and chief priests, the brutal Roman authorities. They had their long-awaited Messiah right in front of them, and they treated him like a criminal. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. When he had been crucified, over his head they put the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Let's pray together. O Lord, may the same Spirit who inspired and preserved these words of Scripture for us inspire us now to hear your living word, a word that will help our faith to grow and put down deep roots. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We love things that are fancy, flashy, impressive, and upscale. I do. And it could be that you do too. Today we're going to talk about King Jesus and the flashy expectation of who and what he was expected to be in contrast to who he truly was. And to get into the subject of expectations versus reality, I want to tell you a story. There once was a man named Antony Gaudi. He was born in Catalonia in Spain in 1852. He was a dapper, very well-dressed young man about town. He loved nature and all its God-given intricacy. He loved everything about architecture, but most of all, he loved God. As an adult, he went to church every day, all the different churches in and around Barcelona. As he worshipped, he sat and took note of what made each church beautiful and different. At last, in his adulthood, he was offered his dream job of building a basilica for Barcelona. It became a way to fuse together all his loves, architecture, faith, and nature all put together. From the year 1915, he poured himself into this project. He gathered many colleagues and artists to contribute to the Basilica. He was revered in Barcelona as a man giving of his very soul to bless others with his work. As he grew older, he lost family members that he used to live with, and his life centered more and more on his work. Finally, in his 70s, he moved into the Basilica and slept on a little pallet there, dusted with marble and sawdust. His clothes became shabby and work-stained. He held up his pants with a rope. Every ounce of energy and purpose he poured into that church. The city admired the great basilica, 
that was growing up at its heart. One day, as Gowdy walked outside, he stumbled and fell into the street into the path of a tram, which crushed him. Badly hurt, he lay in the street while the tram driver and a police officer looked down at him. Look at his clothes. He's just an old bum, they said. Maybe we shouldn't even call an ambulance. Eventually they did, and they got him to a hospital where he was put in a dark little side ward. Little was done for him because no one knew who he was, and he seemed negligible. Finally, three days after the accident, a priest on his rounds recognized him because Gowdy had so often visited his church, and he shouted, Don't you know who this is? This is the man who's building our basilica. At last, more attention was paid to him now that they valued him. But their care was too late, and he died. The streets of Barcelona were filled with grateful, grieving citizens who paid tribute to the man who gave them the Sagrada Familia. Here is his life's work. And it's not finished yet. I cried when I went inside. It was so beautiful. It is still taking shape over 100 years since Gaudi began it. This story breaks my heart. Any child of God should have been better cared for, but that this precious man was not be valued for the treasure he truly was because he looked to others like a poor man when he was a creator after God's own heart. Our story today in Matthew 27 is exactly this kind of story but more so, it's about King Jesus, who was not valued because few understood who he really was. He did not look or act as they thought he would or should, like poor Gowdy lying in the street. Their greatest Savior, their Messiah, but they passed him up. They scorned and wounded him, and finally they killed him because he did not appear to be the Messiah they wanted. We too have preconceived notions of what a king should be. The idea of king is kind of an old-fashioned fairy tale term for most of us. We see historical pictures of kings and crowns and robes and we move along mentally. Here in the United States, we have not ever had a king, nor do we want one. Our first president, George Washington, could have made himself a king one of his officers even suggested that America should establish a monarchy and make him king. He immediately rejected the offer and demanded that the topic never be raised again. So we've never had a king, but we do have a fascination with kings, some of us. We will sit down and watch hours of royal weddings and coronations. Like this next gentleman's coronation, King Charles. He became king at the age of 73 after years of waiting and family strain and pain, some of it of his own making, some of it which came upon him. He didn't look very happy in many of his Coronation Day pictures. And we know all about King George III. There he is. And many of us have recently watched a fictionalized account of his marriage and the beginning of his unraveling. This unfortunate king presided over the loss of the American colonies, and he had obvious and terrible mental unrest. A tragic king, 
who had to be carefully tended and kept from view his entire adult life. And who can forget King Henry VIII, who in his relentless quest for an heir famously had six wives, two he divorced, two he beheaded, one who died, and one who survived him. That was quite a feat. He founded the Church of England over his marital issues and the desire to have no pope rule over his decisions. His appetite can be said to have killed him in the end as his overindulgent habits, obesity, and infection took his life. And there are other famous kings we remember from around the world. The tragic Tsar Nicholas Romanov of Russia, the last monarch there, who along with his entire family were murdered by revolutionaries, probably on the orders of Lenin. He failed to read the coming changes, the poverty and suffering of his people, and he was a tragic victim of the turn of history. And in history, there are fabled kings like the pharaohs of Egypt, who presided over the building of an amazing and advanced civilization with a culture and art that still fascinate us. They built many wonders of the world but they enslaved and abused the children of Israel and many, many others. There was Alexander the Great, who from the age of 20 to 30 waged an immense military campaign, creating one of the largest empires in history. From Greece to India, he had boundless ambition and thought himself a deity. He is said to have wept when there were no more worlds to conquer. And he foundered when he could not keep expanding his borders. He died in his early 30s. And then there are our kings in the Bible. Remember that the people of Israel begged God for a king like other nations had who would go out before them and fight their battles for them. God rolled his eyes but did give them kings, the most beloved of whom was King David. He was a poet, shepherd, warrior and king who reigned for 40 years, brought peace and prosperity and freedom from war and enemies. He was said to be a man after the Lord's own heart, flawed, but able to repent and remain faithful. King Solomon was his son who reigned for 40 years also and who had a famed wisdom and wealth that other rulers came to see and marvel over. He studied nature and for his time was a natural historian. He built the temple in Jerusalem. He truly had it all, but his character flaw was his own ennui and depression, which underlined the book of Ecclesiastes. And his worst downfall was those many wives and concubines whom he built pagan worship sites for. So he was a temple builder but also a builder of idolatrous sites. The kingdom fell apart after him. And there was King Herod, called the Great, not so great, a paranoid, murderous despot who was responsible for many amazing building projects, the length of the Holy Land, which amazed to this day, but whom we know as the villain who ordered the slaughter of the innocents. What do we learn about kingship? as we think about all these historical kings. We learn that not all kings born to rule are fit to rule. Earthly kings are human, as prone to sinfulness as any other mortal. There are few earthly kings who have harmonious or fruitful reigns. 
If there is a flaw in their character, it eventually expresses itself to the detriment of their kingdom. Their families fall apart. They don't understand their children. They wreck their marriages, and that is kind of an understatement for many of them. Their ambitions can tear nations apart. They can wield ruthless power and put down enemies to try and secure their kingdoms. They can fail to read the signs of the times and ignore the waning of their power. Their own people can turn on them and depose them. Their appetites can overpower them. They can abandon their care for their people and become self-absorbed. They become obsessed with leaving behind monuments, symbols, and stone of their power and fame. Many earthly kings have blood on their hands. Many did not use the power they were given to help their subjects unless there was something in it for them. The saying is that uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. There have been many kings in history who made everyone else's heads lie uneasily as well. Earthly kings are mostly a failure. But we have King Jesus, a new kind of king. This dark chapter shows us the quality of our King Jesus. Let me tell you about him. He was a king whose goals were beyond the human realm. King Jesus was always aiming above any merely human goals like power or wealth or status. Others wanted him to be a military leader, a conquering hero who would throw the Romans out. Instead, he was a king who had no political ambitions for himself. King Jesus had no flaws that broke open to destroy his kingdom, no venal purposes or appetites that overwhelmed him. King Jesus stood up to temptation a long time ago back in Matthew 4 and sent the devil empty away. Instead of insulating himself in a palace to stay safe, King Jesus came out to meet and celebrate and dance and laugh and weep and lay hands on his subjects. He was a king who put aside self-preservation to save others. Instead of dragging slaves together to put up monuments or amassing soldiers to fight wars for him, he was a king who wanted no monuments and no armies beyond the hearts of his disciples. A king who had no earthly family, who founded no dynasty, who amassed no land under his control. Instead, King Jesus expanded his kingdom in a spiritual way. He gathered a kingdom that welcomed sinners, outcasts, the poor, the sick, observant Jews and Romans and other pagans who should not have been susceptible to him. And unlike any earthly king, Jesus' kingdom is still growing and expanding, isn't it? Think of it. It's been over two millennia since King Jesus ascended to heaven and his kingdom is still expanding, one heart at a time. In this chapter, we see that King Jesus puts aside his own life to save others. A sinless king who takes on sin so that we can escape it. A king who gives up his own life to make life eternal possible for us all. We have a new kind of king, not like any other king there ever was, King Jesus. 
What kind of king was he? What do we learn about King Jesus in our chapter? First, we have a king who walked into darkness for us on his own accord. In chapter 27, Matthew shows us that Jesus was not a victim. This did not happen unexpectedly or by accident. He walked into his death purposefully. He was not tricked. Though the chief priests and Pharisees did plot and plan against him, Jesus' sacrifice was not their accomplishment. It was his accomplishment alone. We know this because Jesus told his disciples what would happen to him in Jerusalem several times. He let himself be arrested. He let himself be tried without presenting a defense. And at the end, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Do you see that? He yielded it up. He did not have it taken from him. King Jesus walked into this on purpose for us all. What kind of king was he? King Jesus was an innocent king. If you think back to most of those kings of history, not many could be called innocent exactly. When we looked at them, we saw some brutes, some hedonists, some with insane ambition, and some absolutely cramful of evil. I'm looking at you, King Herod. But Jesus was an innocent king. We see that heartbroken Judah says so in front of the chief priests and elders. His very betrayer knew that he was innocent. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. His judge, Pontius Pilate, also knew that he was innocent. Even Pilate's wife knew that Jesus was unjustly accused and sent a message to Pilate saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man for I have suffered much because of him in a dream. Pilate pleads with the crowd when they scream for his crucifixion. Why? What evil has he done? Other kings have dirty hands, but our King Jesus was innocent. What kind of king was Jesus? Other kings used soldiers to defend their life and honor, their property and kingdom, their ideals and purposes. King Jesus used his own life to defend us. He put himself between us and hell and death. He told his disciples earlier in the gospel, the mark of one who is truly great, they do not hold on to power. And Jesus had real power to command angels and nature itself. Listen to what a true king is, according to Jesus. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus laid aside his power, 
and his authority to serve us, even went so far as to give up his life to serve us. That is our king. What kind of king was Jesus? Even when the way grew heavy and terrifying, King Jesus kept doing his heavenly Father's will. Jesus' overarching purpose was to follow the will of his Father in heaven. He kept this ultimate purpose in mind as he walked to the cross. So when he's called on to plead his case before Pilate and the chief priests and elders, he says nothing. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. We know, and Jesus knew, how persuasive he was able to reason with very learned Pharisees who confronted and accused him. He confounded them quite often. But he remembers at this moment the Father's will, and he does not defend himself. He allows them to condemn him because he knows the completion of his life's work is just ahead, and he wants to finish it. What kind of king is King Jesus? He was a king willing to lay aside his dignity to achieve his purpose of salvation. Our scripture for today has some of the most humiliating and painful verses to read if you love King Jesus. We read that in front of a whole battalion of Roman soldiers, Jesus was stripped, beaten viciously, and then mocked with the trappings of a king. The soldiers knew the charge against him was that he said he was the king of the Jews. The chief priests knew they could get Rome to kill him if he seemed to have political ambitions. So they accused him of wanting to be king of the Jews. That way they would be able to point at Rome as his executioners if the crowd who loved Jesus grew angry with them. So the soldiers put a short red cloak called a clamus on him in lieu of a king's robe of purple, which they would not have had or wasted on a disgraced criminal. They forced a cruel crown of thorns on his bowed head. They put a reed scepter in his hand, fragile symbol of his lack of power in their eyes. And they kneel and mock him with a parody of an obeisance. The terrible truth is that the soldiers had the king of kings before them who accepted this humiliation in order to fulfill his deepest desire to defeat sin and death once and for all. Here is what Paul would write about King Jesus emptying himself for us in Philippians 2. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, 
so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. King Jesus laid aside every trapping of power and prestige to save us. He counted all of that as lost to him that he might accomplish his life's work, our freedom, our salvation. What kind of king is King Jesus? He was a king who broke down barriers, barriers between people, barriers between us and God. All his life and ministry, Jesus reached out to people that no so-called decent rabbi would have touched with a 10-foot pole. Sick and dying or dead people, lepers, bleeding women, outcasts, possessed people, tax collectors, Gentiles, Samaritans, all of them Jesus touched and healed and forgave and welcomed into the kingdom. When Hal and I were preparing once to visit our daughter who was at work in Africa, we went to a travel doctor. She pulled out a selection of vaccines we needed. She prescribed malaria medication. She gave us antibiotics for foodborne illness. And she warned us against a variety of things. We should not eat raw fruit or salad. We should not drink the water. We should not forget to douse ourselves with strong insect, insect repellent. We should be careful of wild animals, farm animals, pet animals. Walking at night, generally everything would be filled with peril. If she had her way, we would keep everything and everyone at a distance. She wanted us to pass through the country we were visiting with as little contact as possible with anyone or anything. So apparently when Jesus left heaven, he did not consult a travel doctor. <laughs> he does some withdrawing to pray in desert places, but mostly he is up to his elbows in real life. Jesus broke down barriers between people. He touched the untouchable. He cared. He loved deeply. And in our chapter today, Jesus' Father in heaven breaks an important barrier between himself and people. The Holy of Holies in the inmost, most inaccessible part of the temple was curtained off so that no one could view it and only one priest one time a year could enter it. I believe the temple elite had a real sense that they had God confined in that space that his power was contained there, that God lived there within walls they controlled. How easy it was for them to feel they possessed God, spoke for God, and that they had God well in hand. But as Jesus died, their illusion of control was destroyed. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. At that moment, as though by the hands of God, that dividing curtain was torn top to bottom. The presence of God departed that place, and soon the whole temple was destroyed by their enemies, the Romans. It's as though God said, I'm out of here. I am loose in the world. I have never been confined or controlled by anyone, and I want nothing to do with this corrupt institution that murdered my son, my beloved the Messiah. So what kind of king was King Jesus? 
a king whose will was to die for the sake of others, a king who was innocent, a king who defended others with his life, a king who follows God's plan, a king willing to lose his dignity to save others, a king who removes barriers between humans and God. Friends, what do we do to pay homage to our king? How do we live knowing that we belong to a king like that? We live our lives connecting to others, loving, helping, and living out of our hearts. We live remembering that all that glitters is not gold. The most valuable people like Gaudi and our King Jesus did not have the trappings of royalty, but they were pure gold all the way through. We live remembering that God does not love a barrier and that people we might never have considered as friends Jesus would have drawn close to. And we remember that God is free and active in our world. We do not and have not and will not control God ever. God will always surprise and teach us new things. And our King Jesus will just be just as loose and active in the world, moving beyond any borders we can think of. We live remembering that the road to glory and resurrection sometimes lies in dark places, but that God, God will be with us all the way. And we live today remembering there is another chapter of Matthew, the very last chapter, the happy ending, and it, we will cover it next week. It's just around the corner. Let's pray now together. Dear Lord, you are our healer, our teacher, our brother, our friend, our King of Kings. We thank you for going through hell to make us free from sin and death. We kneel before you, our King forever. Amen.